Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. So reading today comes from Acts 9, 1 through, all right, 1 through 31 there. Um, so uh, I'm sure this is a passage um, some of us know quite well. Um, and so just as we, uh, if you guys could grab that on or it'll be on the screen as well. So meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether man or woman, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple called Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of, of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tar- Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest anyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell off Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is, was the Son of God, is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who has raised havoc in Jerusalem among all who call upon his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through the opening in a wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he had really become a disciple. But Barnabas took him and took him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learnt of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria joined a time of peace. It was strengthened and it was encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Thanks, Ruth, for reading the word. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Simon. Uh, some people know me as Jacko. Um, I'm 
one of the members of the staff team across City Light, kind of group of or family of churches. I'm based at uh, sort of one foot down in Glenelg with a foot in sort of community and connection ministry down there and one foot up here sort of in the groove shoot to take on the role here as lead pastor of the North Adelaide from you guys in some ways. Um, so that's who I am. And But tonight um, I'm just a humble exegete of the scriptures. Um, I just get to bring the word of God to us tonight. So it'd be great if you have Acts 9 open in front of you in some kind of form, either in the, the Bibles on the seats around you or uh, on your phone, etc. That would be a great thing to do. That's, this is such an encouraging passage that we're in tonight. This is a wonderful scripture, a wonderful story. And uh, I'm going to pray to that end that the Lord would just be really encouraging us tonight uh, through his word. So would you bow your heads again, let's pray and ask God to speak to us tonight. Lord, we praise you and thank you for your word. Father, we just praise you that you are uh, such an amazing God. Uh, We see you perhaps um, more God-like than ever, perhaps, in this text tonight. Uh, We pray, Father, that as we study it together tonight, that your spirit would just encourage our hearts. Uh, For those of us tonight who are here, I don't know, battling a little bit, struggling, finding it hard to keep following you, Father. I pray that you would just do a work in them through this word. And Father, take all of us into your hands tonight through your scriptures, by your spirit, that we would see Jesus tonight afresh, that we would hear Jesus tonight afresh, that we would love Jesus tonight afresh. For those of us here tonight yet to trust in Christ, I pray, Father, that you would again do a great work there, bring new life where there is only darkness. So, Father, do your work through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, This is, yeah, like a a wonderful text of scripture. Um, I don't know about you, I I love hearing stories, any story about how someone's come to know Jesus. Anyone like that? Anyone just love hearing a great old testimony? You know, even if it's just a garden variety one, you know, grew up in a Christian home, never known a day or haven't known Jesus. I mean, that's extraordinary, right? What a gift, what a miracle. But there is something about it, isn't it? When you hear a story of someone who's, I don't know, raged against Jesus for a whole long time and then sort of almost turning on a dime, they've come to trust in Jesus. There's something really, I don't know, joyful and encouraging and delightful about a story like that, where someone's turned from darkness to light sort of through something quite dramatic in a quite dramatic way. Really encouraging. I was talking to Adele um, this morning, actually, and uh, I did write my sermon before this morning, but I was talking to her um, about whether there's been sort of any kind of prominent Australian men or women, you know, public figures who've, you know, kind of had that dramatic about, ch- about turn, you know, where they've been, you know, raging against the good news of Jesus and the church and everything like that, and then they've just sort of, I don't know, one day by the grace of God turned and followed Jesus. And I don't know, I don't think Adele and I are particularly silly people, and we aren't entirely ignorant of the news. I can't think of any well-known public figure. Maybe you can talk about that over dinner tonight um, and you can shed light on my ignorance. I don't know. But there have been like people uh, throughout history and even sort of in the 20th century who have, we've, we've heard stories like that, turned from hating Jesus to loving Jesus sort of in quite a significant way, prominent figures. One person is this one coming up on the screen, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis hasn't always written great books about Jesus and you know, mere Christianity and the great divorce and um, screw tape letters. He, he was actually not a follower of Jesus. Uh, growing up, he said this, I have a firm belief in the inexistence of God. Completely, kind of 
And then he's now met the Lord Jesus Christ and he obviously went on to write some profound apologetic books and great words that have, I don't know, encouraged me and many of us, I'm sure, in the room tonight to keep following Jesus. Maybe even turned you to Christ. Here's another guy, Alistair McGrath. Um, This guy is from the UK and he, growing up in his 20s, um, didn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, but then had a radical encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And this is what he said before he was a Christian. God was an infantile illusion suitable for the elderly, intellectually feeble, and fraudulently religious. How's that? And, and this guy, right, Alistair McGrath, he's now the head of the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics at the Oxford University. He's written 12 books on the Christian faith. He's often pitted against some of the great atheists of the world. And, you know, he's, God has used this guy, right, in a dramatic way. These stories, right, of C.S. Lewis, of, of Alistair McGrath, of other people who've changed from not loving Jesus, from being opponents of Jesus to becoming proponents of Jesus. Such an encouragement, such a joy, I reckon, so delightful to hear of these sorts of things. And then perhaps the most extraordinary, the most encouraging story of all is the one we just read in Acts chapter 9 tonight. Um, The murderer of Christians becomes an evangelist of Christ. An opponent of the gospel, a significant opponent of the gospel becomes a proponent of the gospel. Saul turns to Christ by the grace and mercy of God. Um, There's a picture of Saul, right? I mean, Saul, we've come across him already. There he is on the right-hand side um, with the jackets, the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen, the first Christian martyr, to death. This is what he said before he became a Christian. Who are you, Lord? Like, he didn't know Jesus. And then he has a radical encounter with God. My big point tonight, I think it's coming up on the screen, is this, don't despair in the face of opposition. God grows his church through the most unlikely people. That's what we're going to think about tonight. Don't despair when you face opposition. God grows his church through the most unlikely people. If you've been hanging around uh, City Light, wherever, mainly Glenelgan, North Adelaide, for the last little while, you know we've been in the book of Acts. And we're in this series called Unstoppable, how God uses the church uh, to change the world. We've watched over the last sort of eight chapters or so how this rabble bunch of people in downtown Jerusalem are transformed by the risen Lord Jesus who then ascends to the right hand of God, pours out his spirit and starts building this radical community of disciples who love Jesus, who love one another. And we've been focused mainly in Jerusalem. We've seen in the last little while how that gospel, the gospel of Jesus, has sort of burst out from Jerusalem into Judea and then into the surrounding area of Samaria. So the section we kind of have been in begins in chapter 6, verse 8, runs through to chapter 9, verse 31. And what it's showing us, it has been showing us, is that Christianity is kind of emerging out of Judaism, right? Um, There's that programmatic statement, when the Spirit comes, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then we see in this section Christianity kind of blossoming out of Judaism, Christianity's off the back of the Jewish faith. Um, last week we saw how the, the, the Christian faith and this gospel emerge, doesn't, the, the temple's no longer needed. Jerusalem's no longer needed. I love last week how we were thinking about Philip evangelizing the, the eunuch from Ethiopia, this foreign eunuch from Ethiopia, and, and he's being evangelized on his way out of Jerusalem. He's on the road away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. 
We don't need the temple. We don't need Jerusalem anymore. We need Jesus. And that's what we're told in that particular section. And effectively what you see now, following the stoning of Stephen as the church is scattered all over the place, we see that the church grows, the gospel grows as it forms people, as it's shared all over the place, as Christians just share the good news of Jesus wherever they happen to find themselves. Tonight, we zoom in on this guy named Saul. We've met Saul before. We saw Saul just in that picture with the coats around his feet as they stoned Stephen to death. Check it out, chapter 8, verse 1 to 3. Saul agreed with putting Stephen to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was destroying the church. He would enter from house to house, dragging men and women off and putting them in prison. We've met him before. Saul was an aggressive man. That verb there, destroy, in the original language is a rare word that pops up. I think Luke's deliberate in using this in in this moment. Uh, The word, the verb there for destroying connotes kind of severe attack, constant harassment. It's actually used in other circumstances for rape. And Saul is just going from house to house. This is him. Reminds me of kind of pictures like this, you know, from the pianist, the film, and, and this is from Schindler's List of, you know, World War II, Poland, Warsaw, Nazi Germany, as they dragged Jewish men and women out from their homes, men, women, and children, lined them up along the wall, and if anyone sort of went against the, you know, the, the, the Nazis, bam, you're dead. This is, this is Saul, right? Just lining people up, throwing them into prison. And in case you've forgotten, you know, who Saul is and about him, We get a reminder about him tonight, right at the very beginning of chapter 9, 9 verse 1. He says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's breathing murderous threats against the followers of Jesus. Just as you and I are sitting here tonight, just breathing in and out, breathing in and out. So he is breathing murderous threats. He's driven by this desire to wipe out the church. Saul has people arrested and throws them into prison back in Jerusalem. He's, you know, the, the, the church is scattered through the persecution into Damascus and all kinds of areas. And, and you know, Saul is a powerful man. He uses his position and his power and he's like, he knows all the, the people on the inn, the high priest, and he goes to them and says, hey, give me some authority. Give me some letters giving me the authority to go up to Damascus and grab these Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem and put them in prison so I can wipe out this church. I love church history. I love the Reformation. I feel like I'm you know, sort of built on the Reformation. And there was this one guy named Reverend Bonner from the Reformation period. There he is, Edmund Bloody Bonner. That's not, I didn't call him that, by the way. He's known for that. Why was he known for that? Because Edmund Bloody Bonner, his under Queen Mary back in the 1500s, his desire was to wipe out the church. Luther and Zwingli and Calvin had rediscovered the gospel and it was sweeping across Europe and England and Mary's like, you've got to stop this, who can I get? He found Bonner. Bonner's like, yes, I want some blood on my hands. And so he just, he's known for putting more of the reformers to death at the stake than any other. He just wanted to wipe out the church. That's why he got the nickname Edmund Bloody Bonner. 
Now, we don't experience this sort of stuff today, right? We're reading Acts 9, we're reading of this deep harassment and attack and persecution. I don't know about you, I don't experience that. But you can begin, right, to imagine and comprehend what it would have been like for our early brothers and sisters back in the first century in Damascus and how terrified they would be with the news that Saul was on his way. Have you heard? Have you heard he's coming? Saul, you know, the, the guy has been like hurting people and hurting our sisters and brothers in Jerusalem and everywhere else. He's coming, he's got letters. What are we going to do? You know, the brutal terrorist, the murderer, he's coming for us. They would have been terrified and no doubt would have been wondering, where's Jesus gone? Where is Jesus gone? Where are you, Lord Jesus? And I don't know about you, I think it's the same today for probably for many Christian brothers and sisters around the world in Syria, Iraq, China, perhaps even North Korea. But don't despair the opposition. Jesus grows his church to the most unlikely people. Four points as we move through the narrative tonight of chapter 9. Here they are if you're a note taker or if you find this sort of stuff helpful. We're going to think about the persecuted Jesus. He takes control. We're going to think about obscure Ananias, who is actually quite an influential character. Uh, the hunter, Saul, becomes the hunted. You see that fear turns to peace. And then a couple of implications for us before we eat some tacos tonight. Um, but there we go. The persecuted Jesus takes control. We're going to work through those few things. But don't despair in the face of opposition. Firstly, then, Jesus takes Control, verses 1 through to 19. Um, We pick it up, chapter 9, verse 3. Chapter 9, verse 3. As he neared Damascus, this is uh, as Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. It's an amazing scene, right? Calvin pictures, um, John Calvin, the old reformer, pictures, you know, like Saul riding in on his stallion, you know, off his way to Damascus, and then bam, down he goes, hits the ground. He's like all over the place. He sort of says, you know, Saul haughty and all that sort of stuff, riding along, and then he's just flattened. By this light. I think something actually more amazing than the fact that Saul sees Jesus here, I think is the phrase that is spoken by Jesus to Saul. Uh, It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Verse 4, why me? Why do you persecute me, Saul? It's a great encouragement, I reckon, for those of us, our brothers and sisters around the world, who are being persecuted for following Christ. Both in, you know, throughout history, no doubt, a great encouragement for those around the world today who are, who are suffering persecution. I think Jesus is saying there to those of us who are persecuted, I'm, I'm with you, I'm there with you. Jesus identifies with his persecuted disciples. No doubt many of the 245 million brothers and sisters around the world facing severe persecution today, they're crying out probably, Lord, where are you? Where are you in the midst of all of this? And the word is, I'm with you. I'm fighting for you in the valley. I'm here. Jesus 
isn't just encouraging here. Jesus has authority even over the persecutors. Do you see that? Do you notice all the way through this text how many times Jesus is referred to as Lord? Not just some Lord sitting on a throne drinking an ale, but a Lord of the universe. Like, do you see how many times? Verse 5. Verse 10, verse 11, verse 13, verse 15. He's referred to as Lord all these times. Just a reminder that it's, it's Jesus who is in control of all these things. He's always in control. And yet I think we also see here that the persecution of Jesus' people also pains him. But he's always in control. You see, verses 6 and 7. Now get up. This is another reason why he's in control. Now get up, he says to Saul. Go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless, I can imagine. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he, could not, he couldn't see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. The Lord Jesus gives instructions to Saul as to what he must do while he is spending this time of three days blind. And I think the picture here is he's, not, he's physically blind, but that's a picture of the fact that he's also spiritually blind. Yet to have his eyes opened to the truth of the gospel. And then we see all these instructions that he's given, 9, 13 and following, you know, to Ananias, go and visit Ananias. He's called to visit Saul, you know, but then we get this sort of response in 15, but Jesus, do you know who you're sending to me? But Ananias, Jesus says, you know, go to him. There's all these commands, go to him, because he is to be my chosen instrument to take the good news to the Gentiles, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and the people of Israel. See, radical change, but we see the Lord Jesus taking control and ultimately taking control such that his greatest opponent becomes arguably the greatest missionary the church has ever known. So don't despair. Don't despair in the face of opposition. Jesus grows his church through the most unlikely of people. Jesus is in control. Point two, though, this is sort of taking a tangent here. This is obscure Ananias. Obscure Ananias, he becomes like a really central key kind of character. So Ananias, as far as you know, he's a follower of Jesus. He's been scattered into Damascus. Um, Jesus calls him to go to this persecutor when he comes to Damascus. Chapter 9, verse 10 and 11. Check it out. In Damascus, there was a disciple called Ananias. The Lord called to him in a voice, in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. I mean, can you imagine the moment? Like, I mean, it's beautiful, right? Ananias, yes, Lord, I'm here. I'll, I'll serve you, man. I love you. You've saved my life. And then he gives him this like instruction that there's a guy coming to meet him who's been killing people back in Jerusalem. You can imagine Ananias. I'm, I'm thinking Ananias is going, okay, okay. Jesus, do you get what you asked me to do, man? I mean, like he kills Christians and you've told him my name. You've even given him an address where he's going to kind of hang out with me. I mean, thanks for nothing. You know, like, thanks so much. But Jesus says, go. Chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, he says, go. And I love verse 17. Have a look at verse 17. 
Then Ananias, oh, sorry. Um, oh, yeah, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, you know, Jesus, the one who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I love how, like, he just trusts the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, on the back of all that he knows about Saul, he's, then he goes, he, he obeys Jesus, and then he just turns up and he says, Brother Saul? You know, the one who's been killing Christians, Brother Saul, he, he embraces him. It's quite profound. He clearly trusts Jesus. But what I think is fascinating about Ananias is this is the only mention we have of Ananias in the Scriptures. We know nothing more about Ananias. Um, I was reminded this morning this is not the Ananias who was smoted, you know, back at the... It was at chapter 5 um, earlier. This, he hasn't kind of come back to life again as some different guy hanging out in Damascus. This is a different guy. But we don't know anything about him. The only other time we hear about Ananias is when Paul, later in Acts, is kind of recounting his, this story again, and we come across him there. But Ananias, as far as we know, well, he's just here as a kind of relatively obscure person that God has used in his mission. He sees Saul kind of arrive blinded after Saul's had his amazing interaction with the risen Lord Jesus. Ananias amazingly is asked by the Lord Jesus to commission Saul to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to lay his hands on him so he would have restored sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's kind of an interesting situation, but beyond that, we don't really know much. But what we do know from Ananias, I think, is that God uses obscure, unimportant, sometimes largely unknown Ananiases in his mission. He uses Ananias to commission the greatest disciple of Christ, perhaps who ever lived. This Ananias who, well, went out kind of nervously obeying Jesus. I don't don't want to go. I don't want to speak to him. Look at him. Do you know about him? But he went. Have you ever heard of a guy named Mordecai Ham? Anyone have heard of Mordecai Ham before? I hadn't heard of Mordecai Ham until, oh yeah, until a couple of weeks ago. Mordecai Ham was the preacher who was preaching when Billy Graham got saved. And well, oh, Billy Graham's gone on to be quite an influential character in the life of the Christian church. Anyone heard of Stephen Ryland? That's the guy on the right. Um, I hadn't until a couple of weeks ago. He, he led William Carey to Christ, who was an amazing missionary of the gospel into India and beyond. Ananias doesn't sort of do anything else that we know of. But he saw Saul turn to Christ. It's not the main point of the passage, but obscure you and obscure me can be used significantly by God in his plans when we obey Jesus and speak of him. Um, John Mott once said this. I think we've got it on the screen. John Mott, he, was the, um, he wrote this book, The Evangelization of the World in Every Generation. He was, um, John Mott was a great Christian man. He won the Nobel Peace, Prize for, uh, Nobel Prize for Peace back in 1901, I think it was, for his work at planting Christian groups on campuses across the, uh, the Northern America. He wrote this, It is possible for the most obscure person in a church with a heart right toward God to exercise as much power for the evangelization of the world as it is for those who stand in the most prominent positions. 
Now, Mott, when he says obscure, is not thinking of like a, you know, a hipster kind of person who has really funky dress and drinks Zymel lattes with no froth and kind of, you know, I don't know, eats zucchini noodles. I don't know. He's not thinking of a, an obscure person like that. He's just thinking of an ordinary person who hangs out at an ordinary church who can be used by God for extraordinary things, for the evangelization of the world. I find that wonderfully encouraging. That there could be one of us tonight by sharing the gospel. You know what? I, I shouldn't go off script because then we never get to eat tacos in time. But um, I've, by the grace of God, I've been sharing the good news of Jesus with a woman named Pranit who, live, who works at, on the run on the corner of Marion Place and Prospect Road, near, right near where we live. I was, um, it was one night after church. Um, I was exhausted after preaching. I was exhausted after talking to all you guys. No. Um, <laughs> And all I wanted to do was go home, right, and just snooze because I'm an old man, you know, like, and, uh, like at 9.30 at night. And um, I remember I walked into, um, on the run to buy a bottle of kombucha for Adele. Um, I'm, I'm against that stuff. It's too expensive and I think it's overrated. But anyway, I love my wife, so I bought her one. And uh, maybe I should buy more kombucha because what happened was I walked up and I, I gave the, I put the bottle up and she scanned it and then she said, oh, you're going back to work tomorrow? And I said, oh, well, you know, I work in a church. I'm a bit of a pastor and so I've been at work today, but yeah, I'll you know, pick up where I left off tomorrow morning. You know, Oh, right, you're a pastor. What does that mean? I talked about it. I said, oh, I'm, I'll just talk about, I'll just talk to people about Jesus and I'll prepare people to meet their maker. That's what I do. And uh, she goes, oh, right. I've not really known much about Jesus. And I just went, whoa, I feel alive again bed, whatever. Anyway, so I, um, I shared a bit about who Jesus was with her, and then as I was walking back, I shared this at DG the other night, actually, I, I just felt a real kind of audible presence of the Holy Spirit, actually, saying, you need to give that woman a copy of the Bible, and you need to help her understand where to start. And uh, so I went home, I've got way too many copies of the Bible on my bookshelf, so I pulled one off that I haven't, hadn't wrecked too much with writing all over it, and um, I wrote a, a card and just sort of basically said, "Want you to, I'd, you know, great to catch up. I also made it clear that I am a married man and I wasn't sort of being kind of a stalker or something like that. <laughs> you know, um, we would love to catch up with you, like all those sort of things. And uh, I, I said, I wedged it in the beginning of Mark's gospel and said, you really should start here. I reckon this would be a great place to start. She's reading the word. Random thought was that she might be some crazy evangelist, right? That uh, reaches thousands of people in Australia, in Adelaide, with the good news of Jesus. Who knows? Um, obscure people who God uses for his glory. Be encouraged. Anyway, that's not the main story. And even Ananias isn't the main story. Let's come back to the main story in point three. The hunter becomes the hunted. Um, have a look at chapter 9, verse 16, and then we're going to jump into verse 20. You'll just see this, I don't know, amazing transformation of the man, um, Saul. Um, right at verse 16... Uh, Jesus says, I will, show you, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then come with me down to verse 20. Saul spent several days with, uh, with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? 
Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Isn't that amazing? Like a just incredible transformation. Now verse 23, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plans. Uh, Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. You know, commissioned by Ananias to be the Gentile, to the apostle of the Gentiles, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and then he's just transformed, just speaking about the Lord Jesus. It's astonishing, right? Yet I reckon the leaders back in Jerusalem and any leader of the church, of the Jewish church at the moment, would have just been absolutely livid by what they were hearing. Particularly the synagogues in Damascus and back in Jerusalem. I mean, can you imagine letters given to Saul to wipe out the church in Damascus? They, the Christians hear that he's coming. Bring it on, you know. You know the Jews in Damascus. Bring it on. Here is he here yet? Yeah, yeah, he's here. Well, where is he? Well, he's actually down in the main street preaching to people about Jesus. What? Well, let's shut him up, shall we? You know, we can't. Chapter nine, verse twenty-two. He just confounds them all. This formerly zealous Jew, expert, brilliant Hebrew scholar, knows the scriptures back to front, and now he's just showing everyone how Christ is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God we meet in the Old Testament. It's just astonishing, but no doubt galling. And you see this sort of stuff happening all the way through history. You've probably heard of the Hitchens, the Hitchin brothers, Christopher and Peter Hitchens. Um, here they are. There's a pick of them. There they are. Growing up and then a bit older, Christopher um, is now no longer with us. He died. Uh, but growing up, right, these two, the Chris, um, Christopher and Peter Hitchens, growing up, they lived in a household which was vehemently and passionately atheist. They, they, the whole family was just engineered to loathe God and to dismiss God entirely. Um, I'm told Peter, on the right, as he grew up, um, when they were at school chapel one day, Peter got a copy of his Bible and just set it on fire in the middle of chapel. Like, just to kind of state, this is what I think about the word, you know, what you're on about. Um, when Peter was in his 20s, though, he had an encounter with Jesus. He was convicted of his sin by the Holy Spirit, and he gave his life to Christ. And it was galling to Christopher. He hated it. Um, this attacker of the Christian faith now turned to a vehement defender of it. Uh, Christopher is, uh, Peter's, you know, paraphrasing him, has mentioned in many public occasions, my brother has it all wrong. Um, I wonder what their dinner parties are like when they get back for a barbecue on a Friday night, something like that. But um, Saul, right, he's converted, he's proclaiming with spirit-empowered boldness that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that all the promises of God from Genesis through to Malachi are all about Jesus and all the promises yet to be fulfilled are all about Jesus. He is just ramming it home. Jesus takes the murderer of Christians and makes him a preacher, makes him an evangelist. Jesus takes the hunter, makes him the hunted as the plot develops. It's extraordinary. And then finally, fear becomes peace. Well, almost finally, fear becomes peace. Verse 26 through 31. Um, Saul makes his way ultimately back into Jerusalem, but um, Galatians, one of the letters that Paul writes, tells us that he probably spent about three years in Arabia. Um, He was sort of run out of town and spent three years in Arabia. Um, And then um, we meet him here back in Jerusalem. So 926, Saul arrived in Jerusalem. Um, He tried to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a a disciple. Now, you can kind of get that, right? Like, last time we met this guy, he wasn't a particularly nice character. 
He was rounding up our friends and throwing them in prison and now he wants to have, like, you know, a burger with us? But then Barnabas, interesting, this massively encouraging chapter, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he turns up, quells it. However, he took him, brought him to the apostles and explained them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Um, Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of Jesus. Does it go over the page? Oh, yeah. There we go. That's what we we find. Saul. But then there's this really nice touch here. Acts chapter 9, verse 29. Um, He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. I think this is a really nice touch that we not just see Saul doing, but that Luke includes in the narrative. Um, Paul's meeting here with the Grecian Jews, the Hellenistic Jews. Who was the last person we read of in the book of Acts who was speaking, debating with the Hellenistic Jews? Who remembers? Stephen, yeah. The one whom Paul oversaw the execution of. And here we have Saul back in Jerusalem and he's sitting down debating with the Hellenistic one was taken away, he steps into that space. I think it's a really lovely touch. The Hellenistic Jews aren't so lovely, right? They want to steal, like they wanted to kill Stephen and did, they want to kill Saul. And so verse 30, another death threat, they evacuate him. Um, and it's at this point, right, in the narrative of Acts that we're now finished with Jerusalem, effectively. The action moves to Tarsus and it moves then on to Antioch. For now we have the apostle to the Gentiles, he's commissioned to take the gospel to the nations and all the action, all the gospel sharing, all the church planting is going to happen sort of into Tarsus, into Antioch. Jerusalem's kind of over. And then we get this concluding marker, uh, verse 31, that second bit. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit and it increased in number. That's the narrative. Let me draw it together with a couple of threads, a couple of thoughts. One, uh, two thoughts. One is um, sort of a general statement. One's a bit more personal. Um, Firstly, Jesus is growing his church. I think that we see that in this particular narrative, like we've been seeing all the way through the book of Acts. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 1, he's radically converted, meets the Lord Jesus' commission. And then we see at the end of the chapter, Saul stayed with the disciples and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. It's an amazing kind of shift in just one chapter. Don't despair at opposition. Jesus grows his church through the most unlikely of people. I reckon it's really easy as a Christian in Adelaide to kind of get a bit discouraged, perhaps about the lack of growth, about the the lack of change. I don't know in your own life, my life, but just we can easily get discouraged. When we see opposition to the gospel, when we see no change, when we see ministries that are going very well kind of get taken over by people, individuals, and then everything just goes awry, we can get easily discouraged. But don't despair. I think one of the things that Acts 9 should prompt us and move us to is to pray, is to pray that the Lord would continue to grow his church. That's one of the top five. I love top fives. One of my top five promises of God is that he will grow his church. And we've got to pray like that because of, I mean, because of all kinds of reasons, because of Acts 9. 
Because Jesus uses the most unlikely people to grow his church. God turns opponents into preachers, opponents into proponents of his gospel. So pray. I mean, we've been thinking about some of God's favourite atheists tonight, right? Richard Dawkins, he's still alive. Pray for him. I'm told, I haven't talked to Richard Dawkins personally before, but I'm told, I prayed for him. I'm told when he hears that Christians are praying for him, he hates it. Now, I'm not saying, right, let's all pray and let him know, like email, I'm praying for you now. (laughs) Five minutes later, I'm still praying. I mean, he might do something to you. I don't know, but what what a wonderful trophy of God's grace that would be if we saw Richard Dawkins come to faith. You know, like one of those Alistair McGrath, C.S. Lewis guys. I don't know. Pray for him. Irritate him. Irritate, irritate God. But anyway, yeah. Jesus grow in his church. Be encouraged. Second encouragement, and my last point, Jesus chooses Saul. How great. How encouraging. Saul will rename himself Paul in a little while. But how extraordinary, right, that God would use him. Are you not encouraged by that? Paul writes right at the very end of his ministry, 1 Timothy chapter 1, he's about to die. And he writes, kind of saying, I'm the worst of sinners. And yet God used me because of his grace and mercy. This is just so God-like, isn't it? If you've experienced his grace and mercy, to take the worst of sinners and to rebuild and reshape and mend this person into this person who can now take the gospel and raise him up as an apostle. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1 in his opening chapter. Paul writes this. He's later in his ministry. This is 30-odd years later. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength that that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And here's this, verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. For that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. God didn't have to do it this way. God didn't have to save Paul or Saul in the way that he did. God could have saved Saul before he hurt people, before he was running people out of town. He could have just stepped in, converted him then and sent him out. But he didn't. He chose Saul to demonstrate his amazing grace and mercy. That even the worst of the worst could become an evangelist and shape the entire world. If God saved Saul, he can save anyone. Even you. Don't assume you're beyond the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight and you're thinking, I've been dragged to church, or I've turned up to church, I haven't been for a long time, but you're thinking here, God couldn't save me if you only knew what I've been up to lately or in my past. Please come and speak to me afterwards and we'll do a little comparison with Saul. When I was at Moore College studying theology, a chaplain of mine at Moore College, his name was Richard Gibson Gibbo, was how he was known, because he's Australian. And... Uh, I recall him saying back in 2008, in my first year, that we, would go, we could go to him with anything. 
with any struggle, with any issue. And he said, I guarantee you these things. I will love you. I will show you kindness. I will, I will care for you. I'll speak the word of God into your life, but I'll speak the gospel over your life. And in the course of his time at Moore College, he's no longer there, he's working in another college in Queensland, he had men coming up to him saying, I'm sleeping with prostitutes. He had women coming up to him confessing that they're having an affair with another married man. He had, he had men and women coming up to him saying, I have no ability to put food on the table or pay the rent because I have blown it all at the pokies. And these were Bible college students. I'm not saying that they're any better than anyone else, right? But this is men and women battling with sin. God can save anyone. I've been reading this book, The Axe and the Tree. It's my favourite book that I've read this year. Um, I don't think it's going to be knocked off by the end of the year, by the way. It's wonderful. Um, the Axe and the Tree, I've shared a bit about this at Glenelg. This is probably my last share for 2019 about this book. Um, if you want to borrow it, you can. Um, but uh, The Axe and the Tree, it's about a, um, a group of Western missionaries who uh, went to Rhodesia back in the 1970s, uh, which is now Zimbabwe, uh, and they went there with the good news of Jesus, but also with a desire and which they realised to establish a medical facility and also a sort of an education, a school facility. Uh, they went there... Um, and they did that, and they served in a really hostile environment for many, 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 many years. Um, the key character who you meet towards the end of this book is a man named Garakai. Um, and his former name, before he, his name was Garakai, was a guy whose name was Devil Hondo. Uh, Devil Hondo was the leader of a, a part of the ZANU-PF militia, um, who were a very aggressive, um, deadly bunch of people um, seeking to disrupt life in Rhodesia and... Um, they didn't like the work of the Western missionaries very much, and so multiple times they were impacted by the Zanu PF. One night, um, a group of men led by Garakai, um, or Devil Hondo, went into the, Western, the compound um, and with machetes killed all the Western missionaries, butchered them to death. One escaped. Um, it was the father of the author of this particular book. Anyway, um, after that atrocity um, Garakai was walking down the street and he saw an advert in a local newspaper paid for by a group of Christians that included a testimony of a former ZANU-PF kind of um, leader who himself had turned to Christ. Um, Garakai's reading this and he is just enraged, right? He's going, how could one of my own men, you know, kind of defect to Christianity? What these Western missionaries got kind of doing. Hated it. And uh, then he read it again, and as he was reading again, the Holy Spirit convicted him of his sin and his need to kind of make contact with the person who'd left the note, left the advert. So he wrote to the advert, and he wrote this. Now, this is part of the letter. Say, sister, how cool is that? Um, Say, sister, I saw your advertisement in the local newspaper about Comrade Raff. Please, sister, I am so corrupt. My life is scattered. I am a nowhere man living in a nowhere land with nowhere plans. My hand is, too, is short, it's too short to reach out and touch the Lord. Yours in dismay, comrade devil Hondo. He sent that letter and then a woman named Elizabeth wrote back a lovely letter and included in it a copy of the Gospel of John. 
Uh, Garakai read it. And one night he had a vision of Jesus and he gave his life to Christ and then he became this incredible evangelist. Uh, For the next 10 years he spent his life all over Zimbabwe preaching the good news about Jesus. His life was in danger all the time. At the end of that 10-year block he had to flee and move to London because his life was literally in the balance. An incredible story, right, of, of conversion. But what was amazing, right, what's even more amazing is on the night of that invasion when they killed the Christian missionaries in 1978, he led a large group of militia men into that compound to do the work, to kill the missionaries. But in total, right, nine missionaries were killed in that raid. Nine of the ZANU-PF militia who were on that team turned to Christ and became Christian missionaries in Zimbabwe. Isn't that extraordinary? Wow. So, brothers and sisters, don't despair. Jesus is in control. And the Lord Jesus Christ is growing his church with the most unlikely people. Brothers and sisters, as well, don't despair personally, too, that your sin is too bad. It isn't. God's forgiveness is extraordinary. Don't despair, because God can take opponents and make them proponents, because the kingdom of Jesus is unstoppable. There is always grace. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for this wonderful text before us tonight. We thank you for the opportunity and the freedom to explore it. Uh, Father, we thank you for its encouraging word. Lord God, we pray uh, that uh, you would take this word and by your spirit apply it to our hearts and our minds. Uh, Father, We pray that, uh, I pray again, Father, tonight, for those of us here tonight who are discouraged for whatever reason, uh, Father, I pray that you would take your word and and make, uh, yeah, do a work in them. Father, for those of us here tonight who are yet to bow the knee to Jesus, Father, help us again. Remember that there's nothing that can keep us away from you, no, no sin. You've dealt with it all at the cross. And Father, we pray with thanks that you are the God who uses the most unlikely people Ordinary people like us to do extraordinary things. So, Father, help us to keep trusting Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.